I always wear my mask and wash my hands after going home. It's a good tuna, but I think I pay too much. I am the king of the ring. Welcome to the Japan What Podcast, episode 136. I am your host, Matthew PMBigelow.com. This is, of course, the podcast coming at you from the Tomihisacho Studios in Shinjuku, Tokyo, Japan, the armpit of Asia, focusing on AI trends, markets, rising conflict in the Indo-Pacific, technology, and more. I am Matthew PM Bigelow. Dot com. Fairweathers, fairweather friends, welcome. <laughs> Sunny day patriots, how are you doing today? I don't know what that means. Uh, we got a busy day today and we're just going to jump right in. Of course, we like to begin a little bit with its OMG WTF. I had a different story lined up, but something came in this morning and I thought I would replace it and use the uh, other OMGWTF for the Japan Society 5.0 segment. Everything is becoming so Japan Society 5.0. You can just put it anywhere, it seems. What is Japan Society 5.0? I wonder. Do you? You're sick and tired of me explaining it? Anyways, I thought this idea, if you're wanting to come to Japan, would be great. Stay along the rails in new hotel options to open in rural Tokyo. Rural Jur. For a new hotel experience set to open this year. Now, if you've ever been to Tokyo, you know that the downtown area is crazy busy. But if you take the Chuo line heading west, we'll make that mistake again, east and west. If you take the Chuo line going west, you get out to the countryside pretty quickly even though you're still in Tokyo. And there's some areas in Tokyo, the jurisdiction, that are technically villages. You're in the mountains. No one's around you. You're on your Instagram app, and you're like, I'm in Tokyo, and you're just in the middle of a forest. Uh, And it's possible to get that way pretty quickly. But there's a lot of places in those areas where they've just people have been abandoning it all all together. And uh, some hotel groups are trying to move in and, and, like, create a... A, a rail station, a hotel zone where you have, you get off the station and it's an unmanned station, but it's also your hotel check-in and you leave the station and the entire village is like an Airbnb and you, it just, it's all there for you. And it's a nice old traditional Japanese village and it's your hotel at the same time. It's all been abandoned. So why not open it up? For a new hotel experience set to open this year in the Okutama region, which is what I was talking about before, just abandoned wildness, Uh, arriving at a train station there also means arriving at the hotel's reception desk. It will be just one of the many experiences to to become available from this year at unstaffed stations along a section of the JR Ome line. Under the plan, old private homes will be redeveloped to become accommodation facilities as well. The landscape and other elements along the streets from the train stations to lodging establishments will be part of the interior, so-called interior, of the hotels. The aim is to turn local challenges into a source of interest in the sparsely populated area along the rail line plagued by shrinking ridership. Uh, 
The initiative is being undertaken by uh, Sato Yumeko, a local revitalization, revitalization firm based in the capital's Chiyoda Ward and East Japan Railway Co. The first accommodation with its four twin bedrooms is scheduled to open in the autumn near uh, Hatonosu Station. Hatonosu means penguin's nest, not penguin's nest, pigeon's nest. A station in Okutama Town along the so-called Tokyo Adventure Line around Tomei Station and farther west. Uh, okay, that that line name is not good. The restaurant in Sauna will open in March, part of the hotel's opening. Sato Yume and JR East are looking to put in place an additional five to eight lodging facilities along the line in the future. Uh, guests will check in at the station building and they can then enjoy the area's natural features on their way from the front desk to their hotel situated in a local community beside the tracks. Under the program's concept of the area along the tracks are hotels, attractions in the wild are collectively being labeled as a garden. Uh, renovated vacant houses will be utilized for overnight stays, and it kind of goes on and on and on. Um, anyways, I thought that was just very, very interesting. Uh, as somebody who's now not really looking for the uh, the excitement of busy, busy city life when I travel, I've been living in Tokyo since 2006, the idea that I could, for example, get on a train station, get, a, get on a train at a train station in Bangkok, take an hour-long ride out of the city, and I get out of the train, and it's like a local Thai village that's just been set up as a resort, and you get to wander around, and it's kind of like um, the Truman Show in a way, but you're opting in. It's not being foisted upon you. So if you're interested in this, I'll be posting uh, some concept photos onto the website for the podcast, uh, MatthewPMBigelow.com. You can go check it out there. So I thought that was a nice little... OMG WTF like um oh my god what the fuck we get to check in at the hotel station and that's our hotel and the station's the hotel anyways I thought it was cool anyways that's that I would like to take a look um a little bit uh, uh, some de-dollarization. I said it, so we're going to do it. Let's go. Here we go. Now, one of the reasons I focus on de-dollarization more heavily these days on the podcast is that I live in Japan, I'm a Canadian, and the Canada economy and the Japanese economy or the or Japan's economy are both super reliant on the U.S. dollar, the hegemony of the U.S. dollar, trading in U.S. dollars, the Bretton Woods Agreement, oil in U.S. dollars. But as we see the United States turning its dollar into a, a political weapon, mainly against Russia, um, and threatening to withhold $300 billion of Russian assets, uh, to rebuild Ukraine with that money, a lot of people then go, we can't rely on this government because we know what the U.S. did in Iraq and Afghanistan and Vietnam. And uh, so somebody else kind of does something similar and now they don't get anything. Well, what if we do something in the future because borders change or needs change and yada, yada, yada. And we see more and more people saying, well, we're going to go not with the dollar anymore. But when when you live in an economy like the Japanese economy or the Canadian economy, 
you rely on the United States dollar as a hegemony for your own economy. So as the pie shrinks, there's going to be less kickbacks coming to you because there's less pie to kick back as it is. So we're just beginning a little bit here. And BRICS states ditch U.S. dollar in 95% of trade. This comes to us from the herald.co.zw. And I think that might be Zimbabwe. Uh, but this comes to us from uh, Moscow. When was this published? February 21st, 2024. So we're kind of recording this toward the end of February of 2024. It's like a week old news. But with this type of trend, and this podcast does not focus on breaking news. It focuses on trends. It, it illustrates how our economies might need, we how how in danger we are. How, how our currency, which is what we rely on, is currently just kind of fraying at the edges. In a sign of growing de-dollarization efforts, China, Brazil, uh, Russia, India, and South Africa, BRICS, have ditched the U.S. dollar in 95% of their trade. The Secretary General of the International Chamber of Commerce, Tatiana Mohagan, revealed the massive shift in currency usage in Russia's dealings with the two countries. The shift was defined by a massive increase in local currency usage in the trade between Russia and the two BRICS nations. Moreover, the ICC reported that Russia's export settlements in either the U.S. dollars or the euro also fell drastically. Specifically, it has fallen from more than 85% in 2021 to just 34% last year. Over the last year, the BRICS Economic Alliance has not been shy about its de-dollarization plans. Indeed, amid increased Western sanctions on Russia, which more have just been implemented on, and that's Japan also going in on it because Japan follows America when it sanctions efforts, by and large, the country shifted its trade focus. As a result, the bloc has increased its overall usage of local currencies and bilateral trade. That transition has led to some massive changes in the overall usage rate of different currencies by the three biggest nations. Specifically, for BRICS countries, they have ditched the U.S. dollar in 95% of its trade, and Russia has seen its overall trade settlements with these two countries occur in local currencies. Uh, anything else? The ICC has stated that the Russian ruble usage in cross-border transactions has increased by 39% from 2021 to 2023. Uh, and altogether, the shift in focus on trade settlement was put into action for the first time last year and is expected to grow significantly throughout 2024. It goes on from there, but it kind of says, well, now other countries want to do it. Alongside Egypt, Iran, and Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates and Ethiopia are expected to join the bloc. Now, Egypt has already expressed its desire to move away from the greenback in trade. I believe Egypt gets like $3 billion a year or something crazy like that in USAID. <laughs> or is that Israel? There's a lot of money that flows in there. Um, and it goes on. It goes, uh, so the, the Egypt will urge its trading partners to use their national currencies to lessen the burden on the rising cost of utilizing foreign currencies for settlements. And it goes on from there. So that's just an example of de-dollarization right now. And uh, I, one thing that I always talk about with the supply chain wars is coffee. The people in Beijing, uh, which is a coffee hub now, it has been for a while, uh, ordering coffee on their Huawei phone apps and then the Japanese economy with its digital yen, yuan, I'm sorry, 
uh, sends its ships, AI ships with IOT, Huawei satellites and Huawei infrastructure into Africa, into the Chinese ports. And then the Chinese trains go up into the, the, the farmlands and the, and the African farmers put their produce and the, and the miners, the mines put their minerals onto these trains and it ships it all back into China. Um, this is like a very significant change in the way that trade is being done. And uh, none of us are really kind of knowledgeable about it, but suddenly I kind of start going to coffee shops and the coffee isn't as good. And suddenly I start going to like chocolate places and, oh, there's more bread uh, with some chocolate on it than more chocolate than bread on it. And I kind of kind of start wondering, is that because of the bricks? Is that because they are deciding to trade with each other in greater volumes with each other's currencies? Is that because there's just a population plummeting in Japan right now? Is that because the Japanese yen is so low and we can't get enough tonnage of cacao and, and other raw materials into the country to make as much as we used to? Because you can go to China and Beijing and get the best coffee ever very easily, but I have to struggle now in Japan to find good coffee. It's increased a little bit in the past five, six months, but it's not up to where it was before. Uh, so we kind of see like this, okay, here's all this economic data about the de-dollarization and blah, blah, blah. This is Japan Web Podcast. What does that have to do with it? But then you go about your day and you're like, well, this thing that is imported isn't as good as it was. Well, where is it coming from? Oh, it's a country that now wants to join the BRICS thing. And oh, the more and more people are getting on board this BRICS thing. But is Japan getting on board the BRICS thing? Maybe not, because Japan is like really under the American wing of protectionism here. So we rely on the Americans to do everything for us in, in such regards, except for energy and, and so on. But I'm kind of wondering, are they giving each other preferential treatment? The Brazilian coffee farmers are now sending it to China, and so is the uh, African farmers giving you know preferential tonnage to just because there's more buyers from China now wanting more of it, and we get the the dregs now. Is that what's going on? I wonder. But that is de-dollarization for today. We're going to take a look again, because I just mentioned it, the um, issues with the supply chain war. A lot of the war that's going on is the supply chain war, and I talk about this a lot. The Chinese want to dominate the world with their supply chains and they look for excuses to um, increase their own global influence and therefore uh, and thereby um, appreciate their valuation, their reasons to provide to others to use their systems and push down reasons for other countries to use their own G7 systems and so on. And one thing that happened was with the treated water release of uh, Fukushima radiation, 
uh, water. You know, no one's really happy about it over here. I'm not sure if it's as dangerous as it says it is, but I'm still not going to take my kids to go up swimming into the Fukushima waters, if that makes sense. But Russia and China and some other countries have banned the import of uh, of Japanese uh, seafood just completely. And I think China was buying so much of the Japanese seafood, it was driving up the prices domestically. Like a fish that would normally be a dollar five years ago is now like $7, 100 yen to 700 yen, samma or something like that. And, and they will say, well, it's global warming. But it's like, well, there's just more, there's more catching going on. And uh, it's driving up prices domestically because a lot of the domestic suppliers or domestic catchers are selling internationally as well to meet that demand. If they do it, it's fine. But um, what, what happened is that as a result, it's like, okay, so China and Russia are like, these Fukushima waters are so dangerous, we just cannot have Japanese fish on our citizens' plates. But what do they do? They send their fishing fleets to right outside Japanese waters near Fukushima and catch the fish there and sell them domestically instead, which is fine. It's international, but it's hypocritical. It's 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 leveraging reasons to, in my opinion, um, diminish rival supply chains. And we're going to take a look at uh, supply chains for today's uh, war segment on the supply chain war. We are in a supply chain war. Make no mistake about it. And then a lot of the solutions that the G7 nations have for the supply chain war, like whatever, just invest all your money in hydrogen and hope for the best. Put some solar panels on your ships and make them green. And the rest of the world is like, oh my God, this makes no sense. Every time we're like, we want to do the right thing. We don't want to work with these tyrannical governments, but then we want to work with um, the you know G7. The G7's like, we need more transgender officers in your supply chain network, and we need to have more pride flags and we need to have more equality and we need to have more diversity and we need to have more equity listen african nation you might be trying real hard with your ships but you just don't have enough transgendered people working them come back later they're like fine we're gonna go to china we're gonna go to russia they're kind of nutty, but at least it's not as nutty as what's going on in the G7 countries right now. Because that is nutty. Uh, most Japan fishing groups hit by China import ban over Fukushima Rao. Ro, February 25th, 2024. A Kyoto News survey showed 80.6% of prefectural fisheries com- uh, com- mm. Ooh, uh, prefectural fisheries co- cooperative associations were affected by the discharge of treated radioactive water from the crippled Fukushima nuclear plant into the sea, with many feeling the impact through China's import ban on Jap- Japanese marine products. The survey found that 29 out of 36 respondents of the members of the National Federation of Fisheries Cooperative Associations said they had felt or had somewhat felt negative effects by including financial damage due to the water release overwhelmingly due to the subsequent import ban by China. And it kind of goes on from there. By the way, I've noticed that fish prices have really come down and there's a lot more fish in the markets these days at much better prices. Uh, So that's one aspect. 
Okay, so Japanese fishing groups. That's one thing. What happens though? You get involved with China in a business relationship too much, and then the rules will just suddenly change, and you're left holding the bag, and they don't do anything or say anything, and they're just like, "Sorry, that's the rule now." Bye. You're like, "Well, why did we invest all that money in there? We have the money now. Bye. We'll get our fish from elsewhere. We'll have. We've been developing our own fishing fleets, and we're going to park right outside your international border on the maritime side, and just." hoover up as much fish as we can there and go back to our own domestic uh, markets and sell it like that. Okay? All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. That's kind of what they do. U.S.-led Indo-Pacific deal on supply chain resilience takes effect. Now, I mentioned earlier that the G7 is like, you need more trans people in your shipping uh, and that will that will make things better. And it's like, okay, well, who cares if they're trans or they're not trans as long as they're doing the job, right? We can all agree on that point. But there's like force-fed uh, people on the levers of society, but we need 15% more trans people here. Uh, we need 82% more black people there. We're just going to sit back on the, on the levers of society and be like, and of course things are going to work out great. Because human intervention on that side of type of centralized scale just always miraculously comes out working swimmingly well for everyone. An agreement involving the United States, Japan, and other Indo-Pacific economies on supply chain resilience took effect Sunday. This comes to us from japantoday.com. Um, in what is being dubbed a first-of-its-kind multinational deal, laying out steps for laying out steps, people, for enhancing collaboration in times of significant disruption for the region. Uh, I'm not going to read the whole thing there, but the uh, this this deal is pretty big because it represents around 40% of global gross domestic product. And its groups include Australia, Brunei, Fiji, India, Indonesia, Japan, Malaysia, New Zealand, the Philippines, Singapore, South Korea, Thailand, and the United States and Vietnam. Um, they've announced agreements on all the pillars except trade. They will seek to address labor rights. They will also form a supply chain crisis response network as an emergency communications channel and to facilitate the exchange of information, providing a platform for requesting and offering assistance in response to supply chain disruptions. Could work, but that also is a part of the Great Reset book by Klaus Schwab to have crisis groups being able to parachute into any kind of situation from a global consortium into um, uh, localized zones to kind of uh, take over and operate like those FBI agents do in those American dramas where it's like the chief of police is there and then the FBI shows up like, with the FBI, we'll be taking over the case. And the chief of police is like, you don't know what you're doing here. Uh, so... Anyways, the, the the idea doesn't really make it doesn't doesn't strike me as some sort of bold or anything. It's just U.S. led. It's it's hoo ha. It's word salad. But that's that's the way that they're handling the supply chain war. The um, Chinese and the uh, Russians and the BRICS nations are operating with their own currencies for bilateral trade, reducing reliance on the dollar. And uh, we have um, the U.S. led. Res- resilience methods of, of of providing a platform for communication for when things go bad. You ever get the feeling it's like, okay, I'm not really a person that wants to be a Russian 
China person, but I kind of get the feeling that they have their act together a lot more than we do, especially for um, long-term goals. Uh, I'm not sure what a what a resilience platform for information sharing and supply like does, does that just mean that what the Philippines are going to magically grow 80 more tons of mangoes in case the in case Thailand gets cut off like what nobody knows what this means it's it's like meetings with meetings for meetings that discuss the meetings and then you come out of the meetings and it's like this is going to be great it's going to be resilient and that's the only thing you have to offer. There's no map. There's no plan. It's just this vague bureaucracy that hovers over you, sucking up all the money, but delivering nothing back. But then you question them and they're like, we're here for you. We're doing this for you. And you have the gall to come at me and say, we're not doing anything when we're doing it all for you. Now let me get on my private plane and fly off to Davos to criticize the world about driving around your town for 15 minutes on pleasure cruises. Give me a break. Um, Japanese diversing seafood export destinations after China ban. That goes to the previous one. Uh, I say keep it local and keep it cheap. That would just be my own selfish needs. Uh, We've talked about this one before. Shipping insurance rates soar on Red Sea missile attacks. How China is tightening its news on critical materials. Covered it before. Uh, And the last one is a little bit different in the supply chain war. This one is um, Japan's defense ministry hosts Singapore air show display for first time. Japan, of course, doesn't technically have a military, although it's one of the biggest military spenders in the world on defense gear and so on. I shouldn't say military. It's the SDF, the Self-Defense Forces, the Jietai. And um, they've been aiming to export more non-lethal defense technologies to the rest of the world. I'm not sure if they can, though, because they've been isolated for so long. But I kind of agree that it would be good for Japan to have its own military and renounce the pacifist Article 9. I don't think it's necessary anymore, to be honest. I don't see the Japanese uh, aiming to create a, a greater East Asia co-prosperity sphere, whatever it was. Um, and and do all that. I, I don't see it in the blood of the Japanese. I don't see it in the ambitions of the Japanese. But considering that uh, we're leading into this war era, potentially, it would be nice to have an actual military. And I would kind of support um, exports, military exports from the Japanese to other countries. But I wonder if this is just going to be more uh, bureaucratic boondoggling, as we've been seeing in the recent years. Coming to us from japantoday.com via Kyoto News. Japan's defense ministry is participating for the first time in the Singapore Air Show, one of the largest aviation exhibitions in Asia, in a bid to showcase products made by Japanese companies that are now available for export. A total of 14 Japanese firms have put their products on display at the six-day exhibition that runs until Sunday, ranging from Kawasaki Heavy Industries Transport Aircraft and P-1 Maritime Patrol Aircraft and UH-2 Multipurpose Helicopters built by Subaru Group to NEC Corp's mobile surveillance radars. 
Now, if you're familiar with Japan Society 5.0, which we'll be getting to soon, NEC provides the world's best facial recognition software. So their surveillance radars must also be pretty good. Hmm? And I also love the fact that helicopters are built by Subaru Corp. Uh, Adam Carolla has a good joke about that. It's like, yeah, Subarus, they, lesbians love them. I'm kind of elaborating, you know. They drive them to their softball games, and Subaru promises the best safety records for you and your family. But they also love making attack helicopters for the Japanese self-defense forces. That's the marketing, isn't it? Um, so uh, we're seeing Japan branch out a little bit into the supply chain wars, and uh, I would I would put this into the supply chain wars because Japan is looking to supply such solutions to friendly nations, not to actually use these in war, but to build them for other countries to use for their war. So it's there the Japanese self defense forces piling into the um, supply chain. Uh, efforts to increase security amongst the G7 friendly nations. That's going to be war for today, I believe. Yippity yippity. War, war, war. Japan's side of 5.0! The fourth industrial revolution will enable us to create a new society. Artificial intelligence will transform the big data collected through the Internet of Things into new wisdom. Society 5.0, a technology-based, human-centered society. Industrial revolution will raise our standard of living. Close Schwab talk. Various challenges we face. It will, for example, free us from the stress of driving, allowing us to safely visit anyone, anytime. We will have access to the latest medical advancements at a low cost, no matter where we are. All right, that's of course the Japanese government's promotional video for their vision of Japan Society 5.0, an all-encompassing new level of society, going from hunter-gatherer to uh, rudimentary to advanced where we are now to the next level, 5.0, AI, data-driven, cloud-based society. Um, And I use that just as as an overall blanket term, to incorporate all that technology into the Japan Web podcast so that we get a, a full spectrum analysis over what's going on with these technologies instead of just looking at the technology one by one and going, wow, look at that. That's crazy. But what does it mean when it's being layered in to our societies as such? And this one is kind of an interesting one. It's um, I from IoT World to Day in the headline is flying vehicle company signs deal with drone maker. A Japanese eVTOL electric vehicle takeoff and landing vehicle maker, SkyDrive has announced a memorandum of understanding with an Indian drone manufacturer to develop futuristic air transportation in India, not Japan. SkyDrive and Marut Drones 
plan to jointly explore relationships and networks in India. Marut Jones was established in 2019 by three IIT graduates with a vision to advanced agriculture. The company aims to build the agricultural infrastructure of the future to provide the world with sufficient diversified and safe food. Marut builds drones for mapping, pesticide spraying, direct seeding, and fertilizing crops. The good thing is that about this is that you can really target the area of your crop that needs ingredient X, Y, or Z instead of blanketing everything with X, Y, and Z all the time. SkyDrive recently signed a deal with global intelligent engineering and technology company Scient in India for the joint development of its flying vehicle in that country. And it kind of goes on. The electrical aerial vehicles maker agreed to sell flying vehicles to an aerial tourism association in Japan and received a pre-order from that Mask General Incorporated Association, a group that promotes aerial tourism in Setouchi Islands in western Japan. Goes on from there. If you're interested, you can go to MatthewPMBigelow.com to check out more. Another example of Japan getting involved in the international uh, Japan Society 5.0 uh, trends is Egypt. Egypt to manufacture Kusui device to generate water from air with Japanese technology. Technology. Using Jap, this comes to us from English from um, ahram.org.eg. Using Japanese technology. The Kusui device will be manufactured by the ministry's Helwan Metal Hardware Company, a.k.a. Factory 360, according to a statement issued by the ministry on Sunday. More than 70% of the device's components will be locally produced, uh, the minister said during the signing ceremony. The production of the device comes as a result of diligent efforts, the minister said. The prototype was built last year at Factory 360 under the supervision of a Japanese technical team. The device will be able to produce 16 liters of clean drinking water a day. The ministry is planning to sell the device inside Egypt as well as export it to other Arab and African nations. The Mizuha chairman said his company seeks to meet the demands of the Egyptian market and leverage the company's strategic location to further export of its product. The Kusui's device is named for the Japanese water for air, coop, and water. Sweet. It works by liquefying water vapor in the atmosphere into drinking water using an ion exchange system and carbon filters to sterilize the water, according to the company's website. It's actually a pretty easy thing to do to make and do. And I'm surprised it hasn't happened more frequently, but I guess the idea is that the Japanese technology makes the water clean. I'm including that into Japan society 5.0 because making water out of air could survive, could um, solve a lot of problems in the world. Now we're getting to the next one. And this is these industrial robots are getting insane. They're crazy. One version of the industrial robot is by a company called Fanuc. And they as well are expanding in Spain. So we're seeing like this Japanese, Japan Society 5.0 expanding elsewhere in many ways faster than expanding in Japan. I'm not sure if just Japan has so many regulations or there's just not much of a market demand for it. But other places in the world are really taking a hold to some of this new technology. Fanuc Iberia office expansion in Spain, strengthening Fanuc's business in Europe. 
Fanuc Corporation has relocated and expanded Fanuc Iberia, its group company in Spain. An opening ceremony was held to celebrate it. Um, the head office in uh, Castefidelis, uh, in the province of Barcelona, <laughs> has been moved to St. Cugat de Vals. The entire Fanuc group is actively participating in combating climate changes. This is a press release from the website of the company. In line with this direction, the new Fanuc Iberia building has been designed to minimize the impact on uh, environment. Fanuc is presently focusing more strongly on its business in Europe, as can be seen in the refinements of the expansion of Fanuc's European sites. Fanuc will, will continue to provide indispensable values throughout the world. Uh, in such cases, they have the Building Research Establishment Environment Assessment Method. They have 10 locations and, and so on and so forth. Now, if you, I'm going to be posting some of these um, videos onto MatthewPMBigelow.com. These are industrial robots that have crazy laser capabilities on them and, 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 other, and other such things where they work in like groups of four or five robots together and they create insane amounts of um, components by lasering out steel and, and or, or aluminum, I should say. And it's, it's insane what these things can do. I would just have the applications page opened up right now. Um, and it says, Introduction of Robots for the Machine Tending Industry. Introduction of robots for the electrical and electronic industry. Introduction of robots for the food and beverage industry. So these are the human replacements, essentially. Uh, I'm not sure what Spain is thinking, but maybe perhaps uh, importing the third world isn't giving them <laughs> the, uh, the, the industrial strength that they were hoping for. Uh, but by importing Japanese robots, it could give them the industrial strength that they need. Very interesting idea. So you can have like 35,000 people from the third world just roaming around your city, but the factories are still working strong because they're all full of Japanese robots. And not people, Japanese robots. It's a weird robotic migration for the industrial internet of things could be a very real version of the future that we are looking at. And uh, I don't know why, but it seems to be that the machines are getting better than the people, uh, especially for the complex societies that we live in. I mean, if you want to have a thousand components have the same laser design on them, can you just import 35,000 people from the third world and expect them to do it at spec? Not really. You might be able to like make pies or open a restaurant or farm and things like that because nature takes care of most of it. And if you have a carrot that's a little bit bigger, a little bit smaller than another carrot, well, you still eat the stupid carrot. But if you're looking at manufacturing panels for components and they all need to be the same size and they need to have the exact same lasering done on them and the etching and so on, well, you're going to have to use the Japanese robots, it seems. So the who, who knows? Maybe, maybe the Japanese population will totally crumble and it won't even matter because the Japanese um, plants will be making amazing amounts of um, <laughs> robots that the rest of the world will be using. Uh, so I'll be putting some of those. Uh, it's crazy what these robots are doing. I can't talk about it because it's so complex beyond beyond words. You have to go to the website to see it. Um, last week, 
we did a, or a few weeks, a few days ago, we did the deep dive on um, facial recognition, uh, consumer application expansion in uh, especially areas of Japan like Kyushu. And today we, we would be remiss, which is a word I should be using more, if we didn't actually talk a little bit about um, the idea of uh, the new Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, uh, Semiconductor Company, Taiwan Semiconductor Company, opening up a Japanese plant. So why don't we do it? Why don't we just do this one? Here we go. Japan used to be a major hub for chip manufacturing. Major, major, major. And then it kind of go, just went elsewhere. A lot of people blame U.S. interventionalism on that. Where Japan becomes so good at something, then the U.S. says, no, stop being so good at that. Stop it. We'll move it elsewhere. But a new TSMC diversified uh, semiconductor plant opens up in Japan. Again, in Kyushu, of all places. Interesting, isn't it? Kyushu seems to be the place for AI in Japan. Um, and a lot of the bubble in the economy right now is from AI. And a lot of that's being driven by the Taiwan TSMC. It's being driven by ARM. It's driven being driven by NVIDIA. All of these things are, are really uh, at the core hmm, of the AI economy. Um, and recently, they're looking to expand into... Um, Japan, where they have been expanding into Japan, but looking to expand even more into Japan. And this also might be under the threat of the U.S. government, which we can put, we can put, we can put all of these things together. We can also put the war back in. If the Chinese government takes Taiwan, the United States government might blow up the Taiwan Semiconductor Company chip forges, which are some of the most valuable in the world. So in order to preserve this technology and preserve this know-how, Japan is importing it back into Japan, which they used to have the, the global hegemony. Not global hegemony, but they had, a real, they had a real presence. Not so much anymore. So if you, if you just look up... Uh, America plans to blow up Taiwanese semiconductor plants if China invades. A lot of people support it. It's like, oh, if if we blow up, this is the response from people in the intelligence community. If China invades Taiwan and the United States blows up these plants, it's still the least of Taiwan's problems because they will now be part of China. And we can't let China have these plants. We can't let China have hegemony over the global chip network. We will be screwed. So they say, if you take it, China, we're going to blow it up. And then Japan says, why don't, why don't move it here? Why don't move it into Japan? We're right here. We have a lot of chip making facilities in the past. We have a lot of um, know-how. It's a safe place. And we're really secure under the U.S. military, which is all over the place in Japan. So that's kind of what's been going on. Taiwanese chip giant T 
TSMC opened a $8.6 billion plant in Japan on Saturday as the firm moves to move some of its crucial hardware manufacturing away from its native base. Kudos to Japan for pulling this off, by the way. They just did it. They did it very quickly in record time. Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, that's what it is, which account which counts Apple and NVIDIA as clients, produces half the world's chips used in everything from smartphones to satellites and increasingly to power AI technology. Uh, but China's increasing assertiveness towards Taiwan has sparked worries about the world's dependence on the island for chips. The new plant in Japan is the most significant TSMC international investment to open in many years, said Chris Miller, author of Chip War, the fight for the world's most critical technology. Again, that goes back into supply chain war, if you ask me. It will also solidify the political relationship between Taiwan and Japan at a time when Taiwan is looking to make sure it's got powerful friends that it can help it stand up to Chinese pressure, Miller told AFP. But uh, TMSC's new facility on the southern island of Kyushu is also a coup for Japan as it vies with the United States and Europe to woo semiconductor firms with huge subsidies. Firms like Toshiba and NEC helped Japan dominate microchips. Uh, but after the micro, but after the slump, the, uh, Japan accounted only for 10% of all the chips being made. Now Japan is making available up to 4 trillion yen in state sweeteners. Taxpayer money! It's my money! To help triple the sales of domestically produced chips to more than 15 trillion yen by 2030. And it goes on from there. So that's really good news. And Japan aims to provide an 730 billion yen in extra subsidies for a second plant in Japan as well. Uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of lot a lot of a lot of efforts being made in Japan to increase it as a hub for chip manufacturing right now. And if Japan can get its nuclear power plants back online, it will be able to provide a huge amount of power for those plants to make chips, which everyone around the world would rely on. Now, it also would put a target on their backs, so we would have to really beef up some sort of industrial-scale military response in the region. But uh, other than that, it's pretty interesting that um, Japan is kind of coming back as a chip hub uh, and that, you know, the U.S. has kind of blatantly said in many ways, yeah, if Taiwan falls to the Chinese, it might just blow up those chip plants. Do you doubt us? Uh, well, like, what what happened with the Nord Stream pipelines? What What was all that about? Was that... Was that the Russia blowing it up themselves to prove a point that they're crazy or was it something else? Is it uh, global hegemony? Like, hey, we're going to be global hegemony together, right? You better move that chip plant. You better move it fast. And so that is the supply chain war for today, as well as the economy, as well as the aspect of opening up Japan for more business under the Japan Society 5.0 umbrella. The fourth industrial revolution will enable us to create a new society. Artificial intelligence will transform the big data collected through the Internet of Things into new wisdom. Society 5.0, a technology-based, human-centered society. Oh, I forgot. (laughs) 
Researchers have created a new two-legged robot powered by living muscle tissues. The robot, created by the team from the University of Tokyo in Japan, was modeled on human movements and can walk and pivot to avoid obstacles. The small, this comes to us from iotworldtoday.com. The small-scale robot can also operate in water designed with a foam upper half for buoyancy and weighted legs to help it stand straight, while the frame is made from silicon rubber for increased flexibility. Strips of lab-grown skeletal muscle tissues were then attached to the silicone rubber of each leg, with electronic current sent through the tissue to cause contractions, lifting the leg of the robot with each zap. In a video demonstration, which I'll be linking to at MatthewPMBigelow.com, the team showed the robot taking small steps through water. The study author, uh, Shoji Takeuchi, said the team's design represents a giant leap forward for the field of biohybrid robots, a research field that combines organic and artificial materials to create next-generation robots. Quote, Research on biohybrid robots, which are a fusion of biology and mechanics, is recently attracting attention as a new field of robotics featuring biological function, said Takeuchi. Using muscle as actuators allows us to build a compact robot and achieve efficient, silent movements with a single touch. Next, the team said it will integrate joints and thicker muscle tissues into the bipedal robot to enable more sophisticated and powerful movements, as well as leverage electrodes to increase the robot's speed. All right, moving on. The fourth industrial revolution will raise our standard of living and solve various challenges we face. It will, for example, free us from the stress of driving, allowing us to safely visit anyone, anytime. We will have access to the latest medical advancements at a low cost, no matter where we are. AI and robots will enhance human ability and expand our infinite possibilities, helping us enjoy more fulfilling lives. Society 5.0, for the betterment of human lives. All right, and that's going to wrap it up for this episode of the Japan What Podcast. Talking at you from the Tomihisa Cho Studios in Shinjuku, Tokyo, Japan. Thank you for listening, everybody. Until next time, I bid thee a ja mata ne. Matthew PM Bigelow.com. Matthew.